everyone, to Sources, Caden Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I meet up with a former student of mine, Ben Mislevich. He and I discuss what to expect if you're a new teacher and how to build the best learning culture. Ben is starting a new job as a teacher in a classical school and is full of questions about how best to tackle his responsibilities. We recorded our Q&A session at Cana Academy in Falls Church, Virginia. This is part one of a two-part interview. Welcome everyone to Cana Academy. I'm Andrew Zorneman. I am really delighted this morning to host a former student of mine, Ben Mislevich, who has now taken up the calling to teach. He's accepted a post at Trinity Academy in Portland, Oregon. Good morning, Ben. Morning. Happy to be here. Oh, it's great. Well, uh, tell me a little bit about your new job. Yeah, so I'll be teaching uh, seventh, eighth, and ninth graders. So seventh grade ancient history, um, talking about roots of Western civilization um, a little bit, and then eighth grade algebra, ninth grade geometry, and then seventh grade English literature and composition. That's great. That sounds a lot like uh, the first year that I taught. I, I taught algebra and some seventh grade courses, a couple of ninth grade courses. So that's great. Well, congratulations. Thanks. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you accomplish out in, in Portland. And I think it's a great thing that, that uh, you and I exchanged emails and thought it'd be worthwhile for the Keene Academy podcast uh, listeners to, to learn a little something about what it means to be a new teacher. So I'm going to let you drive this conversation. You know, what's on your mind? So what does a new teacher have to ask a, an old teacher? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, not just a, your former teacher, but somebody who's been around the block a few times. But I've, I've done quite a few rodeos, so I'm ready to share what, what I can with you. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to pick your brain a bit. So and one thing when I was thinking about this, uh, when I think about teaching, one of the most intimidating things is just the first day and the first week of class. Mm-hmm. So start off, do you have any advice for how to make the first day, the first week go smoothly? Well, I think smooth teaching performance largely has to do with preparation. Just like a team that takes the court in basketball, they're going to do a really good job if they've practiced well. And by practicing well, I mean they practice according to a plan, to a vision for where they want to be as a team, um, anticipating the kinds of challenges any particular opponent will bring them. And then, you know, we all know what it looks like when a, when a team is not prepared well and there's sort of too much coaching going on or too many mistakes being made. So I think preparation is the main thing. So get organized. Um, now, getting organized for the particular courses that you're going to teach is probably largely a function of following the lead of mentors at your new school. Uh, men and women have already taught those courses, or if they haven't taught them, they know them well. They know the content of the curriculum. They know the kinds of things the students are supposed to learn. And that kind of is a good segue into the to the next thing I would emphasize. I think it's very important for a teacher to have a clear vision for where the students are going to end up at the end of the semester or at the end of the course, the end of the year. I'm not sure how things are measured out at your school, but I think to, to really uh, have a vision for that and have great clarity about that so that you know that everything that you're doing in setting up your classroom, starting each day, evaluating your students, giving them homework assignments, encouraging them, giving them a real plan to, to climb that mountain and get to the top. What does that look like? What does the top of the mountain look like in your algebra or your English class or your geometry class? 
So I think having a good vision is really important. I think also uh, we all have some trepidation about a new job. We all have trepidation about public speaking, about leading people, especially for the first time. So, um, so you need to get on top of that. And however, whatever tricks of the trade you have, you know, use them. But I'd say more than that, uh, do whatever you can to stir up a passion for the subjects that you're teaching. Know that one of the, the most important things the students will get from you is your passion. So, and this goes hand in hand with the vision. Teaching is a lot like um, being a mountain guide. So you get climbers and they're gonna climb a particular mountain. You've climbed it before. They're new climbers and, they, and nobody can climb that mountain for them. They have to do it themselves. But you know how to get up there. You know the potential pitfalls. You know what routes not to take. So you're going to guide them up that mountain. Uh, but mountain climbing takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of passion. You can't climb a, a mountain passively and without a real heart for it. You know, you got to go after it. And it's a, it's a great thing, right? It's a great achievement. It's, a, it's beautiful. You get vision and perspective from a mountaintop that we can't get down here in the lowlands. Uh, so have that vision. Have that passion. Uh, and the students will pick up on that. And finally, go in with encouragement to your students. And this, this goes hand in hand with the vision and the passion that they can accomplish what you set out for them. Like if a mountain guy said, well, you're going to climb this mountain, or at least you're going to try it. Most of you probably won't make it, and it could be a disaster. You know, that's just dispiriting to everyone. And you don't want to put people in a position like that. So you don't want to give off vibes to your students that, eh, this is going to be so hard, you're going to be miserable, or you can't accomplish the content of the algebra, or the geometry, or the English class, or the history class. Nope, you can do it. I can help you. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of work, but it's going to be a tremendous achievement, just like getting to the top of a mountain. So that's what I would say. That If you have those things in mind, almost everything else falls into place. Huh. That's great. That's great. Another thing that I think about just from the beginning when I was thinking about teaching, particularly as I'm exiting my formal student life, is thinking about the importance of ongoing learning as a teacher. So can you talk about how important it is to being intentional about continuing to learn while teaching? Yeah, I think it's very important uh, for a couple of reasons. I think it's important for you as an individual. Aristotle says we have a natural capacity to learn. And he also says that our minds are the most divine part of us. That is, and, and he says that because our minds are like the uh, like uh, the inroad into everything that's knowable in reality. And, and humans participate in every level, from the material to the spiritual. And our minds have a natural capacity, or they're 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 the our minds are where we as human beings uh, engage each one of those levels. So it's never the case, even after we graduate from college or graduate school, even after we retire from teaching, it's never the case that, that we somehow or another park that natural component of our humanity off to the side, or at least we shouldn't. In fact, there, there's something about being a human that is fulfilled and expressed in learning. So there is formal learning, we call it, you know, grade school or grammar school, secondary education, higher education, professional education, we call it adult education, like continuing education. In some ways, we kind of do a disservice to ourselves breaking education into or learning into those kind of chronological uh, elements and because it kind of diminishes adult education, you know, <laughs> continuing education. You, know, you don't get a degree for that. You don't get graded for that. 
But the fact of the matter is, life is, is largely a matter of learning. We know this in the spiritual realm, right? The, the, we, we, we don't stop praying after we've learned to pray. You know, we, we don't stop uh, seeking understanding of who God is and how uh, his spirit works in, in human life uh, after a formal study of it. We seek it every day, right? And part of it, part of the human experience is that there's a, an intrinsic connection between living our daily lives and uh, having our minds open to the reality that we're living in, right? And so we grow in our understanding of who God is. We grow in our understanding of how best to serve our neighbors. We grow in our understanding of our responsibilities for the order of things, for the for the good of society, the good of the world, you know? So um, how to take care of one another, how to understand our, our humanity, how to understand the human condition. This, All these things never go away. So we're... we're uh, St. Paul says we're running a race, right? And you, you, you can't stop running. And I would say you can't stop learning. So I think also on the on the really practical side of it, our students pick up on somebody who's sort of gone passive, gone uh, on half speed. But students don't want to be around that. They want to be around people with a passion for the, the very thing that they're engaged in. So teaching is not something like uh, the transmission of what we've learned through the end of our college days. Now we're done learning, we're going to pass it on to somebody else. Learning is, is, is active. It's a, it's a culture, right? And that language of culture is really important. When we talk about a garden, we have to cultivate it. You have to change out the, the soil and, and fill it with nutrients or fertilizer each year. And you, you have some flowers you have to plant fresh each year, some come back. And you have to tend your garden. You have to tend the land that you're plowing. So spiritual, moral, intellectual freedom had to be cultivated as well, too. And if we ever let that go, it's like leaving a piece of land uh, fallow. It just it, it won't bear any fruit. So I think on a real practical level, it's important for us to keep bearing fruit. It's important for our students to know that we're passionate about it, that we are engaged in the very thing that they're engaged in. So there, it's really important to understand that uh, a school is simply an occasion for experienced learners to bring inexperienced learners into their culture. We could do this at home. We could do it at the workplace, which we do. We do it at our churches. We do it in uh, centers that serve you know, people living at the, at the margins. We do it in our businesses and professional circles. We're, we're always trying to find ways to, to coach one another, to teach one another, to pass on what we, we have, and to work together to cultivate better ways of doing things. So a school is, it, it's really a mistake, I think, to think of a school as strictly institutional. The school is really a dynamic culture at its best. And you are the dynamic cultural leader in the classroom. So you're pulling your students, you're inviting your students, you're coaching your students into the culture that you've established. So yeah, keep learning. I think it's great. And what does that mean exactly? I mean, keep reading. Don't mm-hmm. stop reading just because you're not in college. Don't just read the things you have to read for, for school. Um, if you're responsible for teaching history and you're teaching uh, English, then, then read things that are not on the reading list. You know, and and get a circle of friends who can recommend wonderful essays and books to read, uh, germane to your area. But keep stretching your mind too. So, you know, I remember in the early '80s, uh, I was I was in uh, graduate school studying theology, and I bought myself a, an RSV interlinear New Testament. I had taken New Testament Greek as an undergrad, but I had never gotten an interlinear uh, New Testament. So I got one. I still use it today. 
I'm not a theologian, uh, but in those opportunities where I get to teach or I get to write about something related to the scriptures, the the ongoing study of Greek uh, enables me to do a better job. And I'm, I'm always learning a little more Greek. Um, I'm not a scholar again, but I'm always trying to learn a little bit more so I can do a better job understanding the scriptures and then turning around and, and helping my fellows, my readers, my my fellow teachers, uh, students I get to work with in a classroom here and there, understand things a little bit better. Um, of late, in the last few years, I've really dug in and learned a lot more about art. Because opportun- well, one thing, opportunities have arisen where I get to to lead discussions about art. But I also have found that I just love it. And every opportunity I get to go to a museum or to read a book or an essay on art or to, or to take, say, the Kane Academy uh, guide on how to lead a discussion on a work of art, I take that content and I apply it to a painting or a sculpture I'm looking at and I get a lot more out of it. And when I get a lot more out of it, I'm, I'm a better man for it. And then the people around me, when I'm talking about art, they're more jazzed. They're, they're more engaged because, you know, Andrews Werneman's got more of an engagement with the thing that we're looking at. And that's what, that's, that's what it means to be a teacher, is to point to something in reality, to guide your students or your fellows into that, that sphere more intelligently than if you weren't there. Mm-hmm. It's like climbing a mountain with a good guide as opposed to climbing a mountain without any instruction or direction. You know, makes all the difference. Wonderful. That's an awesome vision for learning. One thing, I think you were going to touch on this, but it occurred to me as you were talking, the, so a lot of people, like myself, who graduate with humanities degrees, they, right, think right. about, they think about, a lot of people think about teaching, a lot of people think about doing grad school. Yeah. Is there a particular um, kind of learning that you think is available to someone who pursues teaching that you know might be different from pursuing grad school, or maybe similar to pursuing grad school, but kind of learning that it seems like you were going to touch on something similar to this when you were talking that is available to someone who's teaching that's kind of particular to what you were talking about when teaching yeah I think that's a really good question so you have to shop around and seek uh, counsel from people who are doing the exact thing that you're looking for like so um, when you applied to college you know you sought out I'm sure you applied to more than the University of Notre Dame, but you ended up going there. But all the schools that you applied to, you, you had to learn something about them. And when you did, you were learning how the professors uh, build the culture at that university. And then when you studied with them, they basically said, this is a great inroad to this sphere. So if you're going to study history with Professor so-and-so or theology with Professor such-and-such, then they had great strategies for entering into history and theology, respectively. Same with your your mathematics professors in Notre Dame. They have good strategies. And they invited you into their culture and said, follow me, I got a great way to approach all this. So as we continue to learn, it's important to find um, sources that are really helpful. One of the things, I'm, I'm not shilling here for Kane Academy, but let me say a couple of things. On our website, if you scroll all the way to the bottom of our homepage, there's a free resources uh, section. A lot of teachers have written us and said, this is dynamite. So, for example, if you wanted to learn uh, Latin or Greek and you've never learned Latin or Greek before, we have a link to a program at the University of Texas that will help you do that. If you're interested in the study of poetry, we have links to talks and resources by scholars. We have um, just 
really good uh, links to uh, you know documentaries and uh, books in the realm of history. So that's the kind of thing you might look for. Uh, one thing teachers have to work on is asking really good questions. So our guides are directed exactly towards that. The you know ninety five percent of what you get in a Kane Academy guide is a set of really good questions for that particular text or that particular sphere of inquiry. But that's the kind of thing you should be looking for. I uh, I think it's a wonderful gift that we live in an era where we can uh, um, you know search online for a great article. So I'm, I've been writing an article for the um, the next issue of Toolkit, which is our monthly magazine, and I've been trying to get a handle on a couple of concepts in Flannery O'Connor's essays. So I I had a couple of resources, but they weren't sufficient, and. Rather than go to a physical library, I went to a virtual library online, and I, I, I scrolled through and I read you know, about a dozen essays, and I learned a lot more about what scholars say Flannery O'Connor is saying. I also found other things that she said which turn around and reflect on the things that I have been focusing on. Uh, so that kind of research, I think, is really helpful. I think also uh, learning with your, your fellow teachers. So I, I'm guessing that your school will have regular faculty seminars. And I would encourage you to take the bull by the horns and, and, and get even more going. So especially um, with the younger teachers, find a way to, uh, to serve each other and to foster a, 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 in each other a, a love of learning. You know, go to museums together. When you go out for a meal, or uh, uh, you know, Portland's the, the beer capital of the country. At least it claims to be. Right, right. Denver has something to say about that too. But, but Portland is a great place for trying something like that. And you go out and, and have a good discussion. You know, um, I know a lot of people in their twenties who are still hungry to learn, and they came out of humanities programs. And there's a very robust book culture out there. So uh, I think it's it's it'd be great to to engage that by having a regular reading group uh, in addition to whatever seminars formally that your your faculty has uh, designed for you. Awesome, awesome. Shifting a little bit, uh, when I think about relating with students within a classroom setting, uh, I think about I have a variety of my own teachers and professors who stand out in my mind who I thought did really well at this, but it also strikes me that many of them had very different ways of relating with students. Do you have any advice for the fundamentals of how to relate with students well? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm, I'm really glad you're thinking about that. Um, so I think that the most important thing to do with students is to love them and to serve them and to lead them. And you love them by serving and leading them. You know? And uh, we're, we're not... So, you know, Aristotle says that every community, even a family, and it's strange to our ears, but every human group depends upon a significant level of philia or friendship. And friendship may not always be the best way to translate that. It's really, it's a kind of love, right? We use the, the, the term philia actually pops up in the New Testament too. So there's that exchange uh, between uh, Jesus and Peter, the interrogation, and, you know, and alternately we see agape, then we see philia. But, but philia is the real deal. It's a real kind of love. So now as a teacher to students, we don't have the same kind of friendship that the students have among themselves because you're significant you're an adult and your secondary students are not they're still boys and girls so we we maintain that distinction and it's healthy for everybody it's like 
the health that inheres in a family where the parents are the adult members of the family and the children are the, the young members of the family. We don't want fathers and mothers to stop being fathers and mothers and to pretend to be siblings to, the, to their children. That doesn't work very well. So, so we maintain that distinction, but the key still is to love them and to serve them. Um, our best teacher models in history are Socrates and Christ. And, and Socrates lived by the love of wisdom, but also the love of wisdom that adhered uh, concretely in the relationships he had with his fellow citizens. So he would meet an Athenian on the, on the street, and he would do everything he could to make that Athenian better. That's his whole uh, M.O. And um, he did it also for the good of the city. He knew that if, if, a, if a man became more virtuous then he would be a better citizen, and that would be good for Athens in general. But he had an abiding love, right? And we call it the love of wisdom philosophy. Uh, Christ, of course, loved loved, loved his father. He, he loved his neighbors. Um, he was all about the love of God and the love of neighbors. And, and together, these are the two great pillars of Western civilization, the two great pillars of, of learning culture, in fact. And so we, we follow them, and we realize that to teach is is um, is to guide our students and to to guide them into the realm of love, the love of wisdom, the love of God, the love of nature, the love of of, of all creation. It's also the the case that um, that both of them were great leaders, and a teacher is a leader in the classroom. The word education comes from educare, which means to lead out. So, what does that mean? When you're leading out of what? Well, when students come to us say in, in history or English or mathematics, there are things they don't know that you're going to lead them towards. You're going you're gonna to open up the world for them and they're going to learn about these things. So you're a leader for them. You're leading them out of that. Um, that's, a, that's a great thing to have in mind when you're relating to your students. And then I think there's the real practical concern. I don't know if this was on your mind, but I think a lot of new teachers think about how friendly to be to the students. What kind of right. what kind of uh, face to put on? When I first taught, I was told by a veteran teacher that I should never smile before Thanksgiving, and uh, I think that's very bad advice. And I would I would never give that advice to anyone. I think that in fact, Gilbert Hyatt, who wrote the book uh, The Art of Teaching, which I recommend to you, and yeah. I recommend yeah. to all new teachers, he says it's really important that the teacher and the students regularly share laughter. Uh, several reasons for that. Laughter is an expression of something we have in common that we we enjoy, that we take pleasure in. It also uh, takes the pressure out of the, of the the pressure cooker that a classroom can be. Uh, learning is hard work. Being driven by a, a tough teacher is is is, uh, is tough. You know, it's it's a burden, and we don't want our students to be overburdened, and we don't want them to lose spirit. So sometimes a little laughter really helps. So I would say, you know, find find what works for you. You can't be exactly like any other teacher. Uh, you have your own personality, your own strengths. But I would say, uh, love, serve, and lead your students. Um, don't run an overly rigid environment. Um, find to uh, so you've already invoked your former teachers. So continue to sift through your memories and say, well, what do I think worked and what didn't work. And throw out the latter, and and then adopt the former. Um, one of the things that I do, I continue to read in what makes for good teaching, what makes for good leadership, what makes for good coaching. 
I love John Wooden. I love Coach K at Duke. Uh, uh, Coach uh, K says he only has two rules for his team. It's pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, number one, don't do anything detrimental to yourself. And number two, don't do anything detrimental to your team. And I thought about that for some time, and I think that pretty much sums up what you have to do in a classroom. So a student shouldn't do anything detrimental to himself, and he shouldn't do anything detrimental to the class because we're a team, we're all learning together. Now, secondary students are not college students, and so they probably need more direction, and they probably need, um, maybe they need more rules. But I'd say the general rule of thumb is that, is that you want to to steer them away from things that will upend their learning, and and then everything else falls into place. Hmm. Yeah. I think you were beginning to touch on this, but another question I had was just, how important, or should we allow ourselves to think about whether or not our students will like us? I think that's a natural thing for the new teachers to think about. Will my students like me? So how much consideration, if any at all, should a new teacher allow themselves to think about their students liking them? Yeah, so I would say that you shouldn't worry too much about whether they're going to like you, and you shouldn't disregard whether they're going to like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, either one, they'll pick up on that, and they'll, and that will breed contempt. So I think what you have to do is walk in with confidence and vision and recognize that it's it's your culture that you're inviting them into. And daily, you need to, by example, by clarity, by structure, and by vision, convince them that this is worth studying and convince them that you have something to show them. So if you walk in and you're given, it's like a scared horse, or I'm sorry, a scared rider. A scared rider will indicate to the horse that he's not up to the task, and the horse will, will feed off of that, and it won't go very well. So what you got to do is you just you got to prepare so that you are confident. You do have a game plan, and you work from those strengths. Don't work from your weaknesses. Work from your strengths. And, and then, you know... So, Infuse it with a recognition that what you're doing for them is for their good. You're, you're doing it because you love them, because you, you want the best for them. And you're walking in um, and giving yourself to them. But to be a teacher is not just to be a leader as if, you know, sort of the students are separate from, separate from us. To be a teacher is also to give our lives to our students. I mean, we lay it down. None of us get paid very much as teachers. That's just a fact of life. But we're also doing one of the most important works a human being can do. So there should be great reward in that. And the students should go, yeah, Mr. Mislevich, uh, he's smart. I really understand what I'm studying. He makes it really clear, and he's very encouraging. So um, think about being a coach. Think about your best coaches. I think the best coaches do a couple things. In addition to all the stuff that I've already said, you know, vision, preparation, etc. Two things they do is they, they look at their player and they say, you're doing X, Y, and Z really well. Keep it up and you can take it to the next level by doing this. You're doing alpha, beta, gamma, not so well. And this is what you need to do to bring it up to proficiency. And they're constantly looking to bring that individual player up to the next level of proficiency. I think the students really value that. And they also value what it takes for a teacher to invest in an individual student. So how, how do you do that? It's not just a matter of you know marking it down in the grade book. You got to meet with your students. I think that's one thing that teachers generally forget about is they they don't meet with and coach the individual student. And it's not always easy because the school day is super busy and the head of school has things for you to do and you have responsibilities to your colleagues. But I think one, the maybe the gold standard is 
Socrates and Jesus who looked their fellow in the eye by name and said, this is what you got to do. And uh, I can help you. And, and that means the world to kids. Young people, they want to belong to whatever it is that you're leading, all right? Or at least they, they want to belong. And so mm-hmm. what you want to do is create something that they want to belong to. But they really value the investment of the mentor, the, the wise teacher who's been to the rodeo a number of times and says, I, I know you can do this. I can help you do this. It's going to be hard to get to the top of the mountain, but let's go there because it's the best view of the world. Right? So that encouragement is really great. So that's what I would say. I'd say don't worry so much about whether they like you or dislike you. Um, worry about whether or not they're with you. Are, are they following you? You know, because you are the leader. Educare. Are you leading the mount? You're, right. you're say you're moving up the mountain. So, do they want to get to the mountaintop? You know, if they don't want to go, it doesn't matter whether they like you or not. <laughs> right. Right. That's great. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sources. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going, and please bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer is Helen DeSell Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host. For all of us at Keen Academy, thanks for listening to Sources. Sources.